First Timothy, we said, is a book, a personal letter written by Paul to Timothy. At the same time, it's a letter for the church because within this letter, Paul explains the blueprint of a gospel-centered church. We get this from 1 Timothy 3.14, where Paul tells Timothy, I'm not sure when else I'm going to visit you. I hope to see you soon. But in the meantime, remind the house of God, the family of God, which is also the church of the living God. So the family of God is the church of God, which also is the pillar of truth. Remind them how they ought to live according to the gospel. So although this is a personal letter, this is a letter that contains public instructions for a gospel-centered church. And so far in chapter 1, what we learned is this, that we have a truth that we need to guard. That there are false teachings, there are false doctrines in the midst of all that. How do we distinguish what is true from what is false? How do we know what is good from what is evil? Well, we simply look at the gospel. Out of the gospel of Jesus Christ flows out of what is true. So we have a truth that we need to guard. We also know as a gospel-centered church, we have a reason to worship. We looked at Paul's personal testimony last week, and as he's sharing his story, he pause in the middle of his statement, and he says, well, I need to praise God for what he done for me. In verse 18, it says, verse 17, it says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So whenever Paul is talking about God and the gospel, you get a sense that he's not just stating facts, but this is personal to him. Like He's overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God. So a gospel-centered church has a reason to worship. And lastly, a gospel-centered church has a mission to accomplish. Paul said, I received this from God uh, out of his mercy and grace. This is the calling that I have so that I can be an example for others, so that the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ can be displayed to others who do not know um, him yet. And so there's a missional aspect to this calling. So a gospel-centered church has truth to guard, it has a reason to worship, and also it has a mission to accomplish. And all this is centered around the gospel. If there is no gospel, there's no reason for us to pack a room like this uh, on a Sunday morning. But we gather here today because we believe in the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And after saying all that, in today's passage, Paul simply says this, fight the good fight for the gospel. Fight the good fight for the gospel. Look at verse 18. It says this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, my spiritual son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So other translations say fight the good fight or fight the battle well. What kind of battle is this? It's the battle for truth. It's the battle for the gospel. It's something that Paul already mentioned when he was mentioning about the false teachings and the false doctrines that were being taught and preached within the context of the local church. And so how do we fight the good fight? How do we live for the gospel and fight well for the gospel? I just want to highlight three things from today's text. So if you are taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Number one, we need to know and believe what is true. We need to know and believe what is true. After saying, wage the good warfare, it says in verse 19, holding faith. Now, this doesn't mean 
okay, just believe more, like, you know, have stronger faith. That's not what is being addressed here. When Paul says holding faith, it's talking about the content of Timothy's faith. The content of his faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is telling Timothy is this, know what you believe, understand what you believe. That's important. That matters. No, there are many Christians who would say, I love the Lord. I love God. And yet, they know little to nothing about God when it comes to how God is displayed in his word. We have a lack of knowledge and understanding of God, and a lot of times that leads us to, a lack, to have a lack of love for God. And we know this is true because we see this all over our lives. For me, example, um, I have a particular taste for ramen. Uh, I love Japanese ramen. I mean, I was really interested in ramen before, uh, but before I went to Japan, ramen was just ramen, right? It, was, it tasted good. It tasted nice. It was really decent, comforting as well. But I had a chance to go to um, Osaka, Japan, and that place is full of good places with ramen. So I still remember uh, the first time I had Japanese ramen at, in Japan. It was completely different. I realized that I was lied my whole life. Like what I ate so far was not real Japanese ramen. And then I came back and then I realized everything that I've been eating or now I, it's available for me is not really close to the real deal. So what changed? Before, I thought everything was okay. It was decent enough. But the moment I was exposed to what is true, now I realize what is false in my life. That's why I love Menya Hosaki, by the way, uh, because it's the closest thing to really the Japanese ramen that we have nearby. Um, I think another thing that comes to my mind is Texas barbecue. I was in Texas for many, many years. And, and so every time I eat Texas barbecue, people ask me the question, hey, how's the barbecue, right? And I, I want to be polite. I don't want to be rude. So I say, it's, it's, it's good. It's all right. But, but they ask me, like, what, what do you mean it's all right? It's good. Like, this is amazing. And then I, I tell them, well, yeah, you just have to go into Texas and, and try their barbecue. Like, once you try the true, the real deal, then everything else, you know, you realize what is true and what's not true. So the more knowledge that you have, the easier you can distinguish what is true and not true. The same is true about our spiritual journey with Christ. The reason why we are so open and deceived, intrigued by false teaching, by all these different opinions about Jesus and about God is because we lack truth. Because we don't know what is really true, this sounds good, this sounds right, and we have no opinion whatsoever. And as a result, we, we lack what is really, really important and true in our lives. In Ephesians 6, 17, when talking about the spiritual warfare that takes place, Paul says God has given you an armor that you can put on. And there's different components to this armor, but there's one component, the sword, that you have. And Ephesians 6, 17 says the sword is the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit helps you understand the Word of God. So eventually, this sword that you have, that you can use for spiritual battle. Every other element in Ephesians 6, by the way, is an object of defense. It's something that you wear to protect yourself. There's only one weapon that you have. It is the sword 
of the Spirit, which is also called the Word of God. In other words, on a daily basis, if you are getting up, if you are walking into this world, which is a battlefield according to God's Word, and you are walking into this world without God's Word, you're walking into war without a sword, without a weapon. And guess what's going to happen? Like, do you really believe that you can have victory without a weapon? God tells us that the word of God is your sharpest tool, your sharpest weapon. So we need to know and believe what is true in order to fight the good fight. Number two, we need to practice what is true. We need to practice what is true. Knowing what's good, knowing what's right is is not good enough. That's good, but it's not good enough. Look at verse 19 one more time. It says this, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, a couple of times in this letter, those two things go hand in hand. Truth and good conscience, they go hand in hand. Why? Because someone who understands what is true would live with a good conscience. What is a good conscience? In other places, Paul mentions clear conscience, pure conscience. Um, and so uh, sometimes in 1 Corinthians 8, it talks about strong conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8 in particular, he distinguishes people that have a strong conscience and a weak conscience. The difference is this. They were having this dispute over what to eat and what not to eat. And when Paul is addressing the church, he says, those who are weak in their conscience are people who not only just believe in God's word, but they believe in so many other things. And as a result, it's not that they lack truth, but they have so much things other than the truth that they have a lack of wisdom on what is true and what's not true. That's someone who has a weak conscience, someone who's has a strong conscience is someone who has this sharp understanding of God's word and they don't bring stuff outside of the Bible. They don't rely on other truth. They simply stick to God's word. Like they have this spiritual compass, this moral compass inside of them that aligns with the very word of God. And so when Paul is saying, have a good conscience, he's not just talking about a thought, he's talking about behavior. He's saying that your belief is important, but how you live out your beliefs and your behavior is very important as well. Just having faith is not good enough. Now, we live in a day and age where people think very negatively negatively about uh, our church. We have this bad reputation as Christians, as, as, as the local church. And I think the reason why, um, because a lot of that is true, the reason why the church is struggling to be a good witness for the Lord is because we lack in this area. That either we hold on to what is true, but we don't have a good conscience, or we don't care about what is true at all. In one sense, one reason why a lot of times believers, the church, they remain silent. It's true to, to keep peace, to be loving to our neighbors. That's true. But part of it is because we're not sure about what is true. We're not sure if this is worth fighting for. We're not sure if this is really grounded in God's word. And, and we don't know how to back it up either. And so we have no confidence whatsoever. So we are afraid to form an opinion. We are afraid to address someone else's opinion. And as a result, what happens is we remain silent. So a lack of truth leads to silence. On the flip side, there are a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge about God's word, and a lot of times their information is very accurate. However, they have great knowledge, great wisdom, but they lack a good conscience. Like they would talk about different issues that come up in the Bible, 
They would speak about those things, and yet their life is completely set apart from that particular issue. I mean, in our society, there are so many current events that are taking place, so many issues that are coming up on a daily basis, abortion, racism, education, unemployment, uh, poverty, immigration, tax, gun control, all these different issues. We can try to pick a side, left or right, but one question that we have to ask is this. In whatever issue that you're dealing with, can you actually pull out a passage from the Bible and talk about it? Do you know where in the Bible it talks about the sanctity of life, the importance of diversity? Like, do you know where it talks about how we should take care of the poor? poor? Like, we have all these different ideas and thoughts, but are those ideas really from God's word? That's the question that we have to struggle with when it comes to violence. Like, what does the word of God say? Because throughout history, we have different opinions and thoughts from society, but the word of God is timeless. It is always true. God created this world in a unique, specific way. He sets what's good and what's evil, um, not according to our standards, but according to his standards. And therefore, when we are talking about issues of morality or of society, as Christians, the first place that we need to run to is God's word. And if we know what the word of God says, we next have to examine our hearts and live out what is true. If we're going to talk about the importance of life, then we have to care about life in our everyday life. If we're going to talk about the importance of, 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 of education or equal, uh, equal opportunities, then we have to give people a fair chance in our personal life as well. What I'm trying to say is this. Our message matters, but at the same time, how we share that message the messenger matters as well. I still remember this. Um, in my preaching class when I was in seminary, uh, you actually learn how to give a sermon in seminary. And so what we do is we would uh, listen to different sermons and we would analyze whether it was good or whether it was unhelpful. I remember one day, uh, our professor, he, he put on a sermon that was about 20 minutes. It was from the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 90s. And this guy was giving this incredible sermon and if you know anything about the Southern Baptist Convention, it is one of the biggest gatherings uh, for pastors and leaders of the church. So this guy who's preaching is not just preaching in front of people. He's preaching in front of pastors and theologians and people who know the Bible left and right. So you have to be pretty talented and gifted in order to be in that position. So I'm listening to the sermon. The class is listening to the sermon. When the sermon was done, the professor asked the question, what do you guys think about it? And everyone was like praising, man, that guy, he has great charisma. The way that he was communicating the truth was incredible, great illustrations, very easy to follow, and all these compliments were coming out. And then afterwards, the professor says, well, I forgot to mention one thing in the speaker's introduction. This pastor uh, got fired from his church, resigned from his church because he had an affair. Like, and then he asked the question, what do you think about this sermon now? The message was the same. Everything that the preacher said in the message was absolutely according to God's word. However, could we confidently say that that was an incredible sermon, knowing really the, the life of the pastor? I'm not saying that we need to be perfect. No one is perfect other than God. But what I'm trying to say, if we have a truth that is worth guarding, we have to guard it not just with our words, but with our life, our actions, how we live to be a faithful witness to others. Hold on to the faith and the good conscience. And it says in verse 19, because if you don't, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of 
their faith. So there's two types of faith that Paul is mentioning today. There's this godly, good faith that is rooted in the gospel, and there's a faith that is shipwrecked. A shipwreck is when a ship is traveling in the ocean, meets a, meets a storm, gets completely destroyed. All the pieces are scattered, and those pieces are just drifting away from the ocean. And what the Bible is saying today is this. If you don't fight for the gospel, eventually what's going to happen to your faith, it's going to get shattered, and it's going to get drifted away. It's going to drift away. That, that your relationship with God is going to be destroyed, and you're going to be moved farther, farther away from God. And that's what Paul is saying. That's the danger of not fighting for the gospel. And he gives us a very personal example in verse 20. And this is one of those verses that you wish you can just simply skip because just think about this. Think about what Paul is saying here. Among whom are Hermeneus and Alexander, whom I, Paul, have handed over to Satan. Have you seen anyone hand a person over to Satan? Like that they may learn not to blaspheme. One of those weird verses that you're, you, you don't want to necessarily know what it means because it sounds so scary, right? Apostle Paul, he says, I literally handed over these two people, these two individuals, to Satan. Like, how does that work? How do you hand someone over? That sounds so wrong. Like, and how does an individual have such power to hand someone over to saint. This is one of those verses that makes you go, okay, I like church, I like God, but this is why I need to keep, keep my distance with church and God. Because like there is, I mean, who knows? Like I can be handed over to Satan. Like what's going on here? Um, now you have to understand kind of the history and the biblical context of, of Paul's saying. Paul is writing to Timothy, who currently is a pastor at the church of Ephesus. That is important because the church of Ephesus, all, out of all the different cities that Paul visited, out of all the different churches that Paul planted and ministered to, it was the church of Ephesus that Paul spent the most time. Three years, he was at the church of Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Before he was at the church of Ephesus, he was at the church of Corinth, which is in um, modern-day Greek. And so... Paul spent six months in the church of Corinth, and then he goes over to the church of Ephesus. He spends three years there, and while he's doing ministry here, he hears that the church of Corinth is struggling, that, that they're fighting, that there's division, that there's problems. And so he writes a letter to address their problems, and that's the letter 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, one of the key issues that are brought up is within the church, there's a member of the church. This is not a non-believer. There's someone who calls himself a Christian, someone who calls himself a member of the church, someone who says, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, someone who says all that, and yet someone who was having an affair. And Paul says, you know, that person is polluting the church. You need to do something about it. Although this person was walking in sin, the church of Corinth did nothing about this person. Now, no one spoke to this person. No one tried to figure out what was going on. Everyone just remained silent. And Paul says, you can't do that for two reasons. Number one, because eventually that person, that person's sin is going to destroy the church. It's like you have a rotten thing in your refrigerator, like something that's smelling something that expires, something that's disgusting. And you might think, well, other products in the refrigerator are great. They're okay. But sooner or later, you're going to like, realize that that smell, that rotten smell is going to penetrate everything else that you have in the refrigerator. And over time, everything in it is going to get spoiled. 
And what Paul is saying is this, for the health of the local church, you need to do something about this individual. You can't stay silent. And so what he encourages to do in 1 Corinthians 5 is first to talk to this person according to Matthew 18, what Jesus laid out. He said, if a brother sins against you, go talk to that person. Don't gossip about it. Don't put it on the internet. Don't Instagram about it. Uh, But talk to that person. Confront that person with love and truth. Deal with your issues so that that person will be restored. The purpose of your actions is not to destroy the other person, but is to restore a brother and sister in Christ. If that person does not listen, you take two other people with you to confront the person. If that person still does not listen, you bring that person to the leaders of the church and then to the entire church. And if still that person does not listen, you treat that person as a non-believer, as a member, as, as someone who's not a member of the church. In other words, you take them out of the group of believers. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says you should do the same thing with this guy who's having an affair within your church. You confront them with grace. You try to talk to them, try to stir them up to godliness, help them recognize that they're destroying their lives and they're destroying the life of the church. But if they still don't understand what's going on, they, if they still don't, he still don't, doesn't respond, the Bible says, purge the evil person from among you. Remove that person from among you. So this idea of removing an individual from the church exists in 1 Corinthians 5. But it's interesting because it also says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So by releasing this person from the local church, this person might suffer physically. The flesh is going to be destroyed. But Paul says this will be an opportunity for his spirit to be restored. And immediately when I read this, I thought about the prodigal son. Like when he was under the the father's rule and reign, the care of the father, loving father, he was so spoiled, didn't know what he had. He was living life however he wanted to live. And he brought up this idea. He wanted his inheritance to go for far, far away. The father had no reason to, to grant this request. Actually, according to the custom, he should have either kicked out the son or stoned the son. Um, I mean, that was the proper way to address a rebellion son who wanted to consider the father dead. Instead, the father lets the son go so that the son can live in his selfishness, in his sin, so that he can experience the emptiness of life. And so what the Bible is saying is this. You don't let someone go so that that person can be destroyed. Sometimes you have to let people go if they're not listening to the very end. The last thing that you can do as the local church, as a body of believers, the most loving thing that you can do at that moment is actually have that person experience the emptiness of life outside of the local church. And this is not a new concept in the New Testament. Um, This is actually something that exists in the Old Testament, right? When God told his people, I'm going to lead you into the promised land, a place that is safe, a place that is, is good for you. And then they start living in sin, and God sends prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, you have to repent. You can't live like this. You have to dress, dress your sin. And, and the people, when they were resilient, when they refused to repent, what happened? God gave them up to foreign nations. God sent them away in exile, not to destroy them, but so that they can recognize their sin and come back to the Lord. 
And that's why in Hebrews 12, 11, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's a great verse that parents you can use on your children. Uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is this, uh, though, when we are disciplining our children, disciplining people um, in, in, within the church, when we have to confront others with what is true, we don't do it because it's pleasant, because it feels great, or because we want to destroy the other person. We want to do it so that it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word discipline is so similar to the word disciple. Like someone who is a disciple is someone who is walking in the discipline of the Lord. And what the Bible tells us today is we want to fight the good fight. We need to practice and embrace godly discipline. We need to practice and embrace godly discipline. So we need to care for what is true. We need to live out what is true. And if we see other people walking away from what is true, then we, t- we need to care about those people. If someone confronts us with what is true, then we need to be teachable. We need to be humble. We need to be willing to say, hey, like, I don't know everything. Like, if you see a sin in my life, I'm totally fine with it because I know that you're doing this because you love me because you care about me, because you want the best of me. Notice the reason why Paul is telling this to Timothy is because there's not a pastor, there's not a leader, there's not a life group leader or a teacher, anyone who's immune to this problem. And so I pray every single day, like whenever I'm teaching, whenever I'm preaching, I'm praying this prayer that God help me to hold on to what is true. At the same time, help my life to to be an example of what is true. And God, give me the courage and also the heart to care about others enough that I would go out my way to address some issues in their life, in love, in care, that I would actually invest my life into their life, and if they don't listen, give me the courage to love them enough for a period of time to let them go so, so that I can later on restore them. Like, this is the calling that God places on our heart. Why does God mention all this? It's because he wants us to fight for the gospel. Jesus lived this type of life. He cared for what is true. He did not compromise what was true about God, about his calling. He also lived with a good conscience. You think about Jesus. He said all the right things, but he lived a righteous life. And that's why people didn't really have an issue with Jesus. He was so loving and caring. He was the friend of the sinners. Like, does that mean like he was, he was neglecting of their sin? No. Like, he still taught what was true. It was that he was so loving and kind and gracious that his ultimate goal was not to destroy sinners. His ultimate goal was to restore sinners. How do we know that? He went to the cross on behalf of sinners, died in their place so that they might believe in him and not perish but have eternal life. And after that, he forms us. He gives us this church, the body of Christ. And in this beautiful community that we're able to keep another accountable, stir one another up, to godliness, to holiness. Why? For the sake of the gospel. So let's remember that we have a message to share, that we have a reason to worship, that we have a community where we can do this together. So let's fight for the gospel. Amen? Let's pray.